Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Upside Down and Backward, Finding Faith to Read Reality, and is based upon the lecture, lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 3rd, 2007. According to the Church's liturgical calendar, the weeks after Pentecost are called Ordinary Time. It hasn't felt ordinary. Paul emailed that he has inoperable cancer. I've joined his friends around the world to pray for healing, but the medical prognosis isn't good. Why has God allowed such a horrible disease to visit such a beloved saint? Over dinner, I listened with admiration as Kit described his efforts to fully express his love for his daughter, Barbara, who was transgendering into Bill. I left thinking how no parenting handbook could prepare you for that, and wondering whether I would be half the Christian parent as Kit if I faced similar circumstances. While walking my dog, I ran into a friend I hadn't seen in several years. He said that he was finally leaving his wife of 30 years, that his teenager was smoking pot, that their daughter had married, and that a mutual friend had left her invalid husband of 30 years. I walked home wishing I had been a better friend to my friends. Lending a sense of the surreal to so-called ordinary time, Jerry Falwell died. I've been openly critical of Falwell, and in the broader public imagination, he leaves a controversial legacy of fundamentalist bombast, political divisiveness, and regrettable sound bites. But now that he's dead, I find it hard to think ill of him. I've pondered what people will say about me when I die, and how, after a few tears by family and friends, my brief life will be only a memory to a very few people. Ordinary time, ordinary people, and the extraordinary challenges of everyday life. Sickness and health, a father's love for his child, marriages that flourish and fail, struggling teenagers, the death of a public figure that captures a few nanoseconds of the daily news, before it is eclipsed by other so-called stories. The Latina theologian Maria Isazi Diaz describes this intersection of the sacred and the mundane, the unexpected and the unexceptional, as what she calls, quote, the daily thing, end quote, or sacred ordinariness, lo cotidiano, my friends made me grateful that I shared their Christian faith, but also left me wondering exactly what Christian authenticity looks and feels like amidst their daily life experiences. Sometimes I've prayed for the wisdom, knowledge, or understanding that Proverbs chapter 8, verse 11 for this week's lectionary describes as invaluable and incomparable. 
more precious than rubies, and nothing you can compare with her. Nothing you can desire compares with her. Or I've prayed for the guidance into quote-unquote all truth that this week's gospel mentions in John chapter 16, verse 13. Mostly, though, I experience human wisdom as imperfect and elusive. The problems, as Lou Smedes wrote 20 years ago, is that even when we have discernment, we still see things through a glass darkly. We don't have perfect discernment, and we don't have it with the same acuteness one day that we have it on another day. And we don't always know whether we have it or not especially when someone else sees the same thing differently than we see it. So when we pray for discernment, wrote Smeads, we don't expect to get an infallible 20-20 sense of things going on around us. Rather, discernment is not a kind of divine intuition that gives us infallible clairvoyance. Rather, it's a heightened power to look at and listen to what is going on in front of our eyes and see it for what it is in all its dimensions. So, instead of crystalline clarity or spiritual platitudes about complex problems, authentic Christian wisdom invites us to a counterintuitive and certainly a countercultural way of understanding. The psalmist for this week, for example, reminds us that the God whose majesty extends to all the earth is the same God who silences the powerful with the songs of babies, Psalm 8, verse 2. Similarly, Paul says that instead of despair, he urges his Roman readers to rejoice in suffering, knowing that nothing can separate them from the love and grace that God has lavished on them. They have every reason to believe, says Paul, that their hope will not disappoint them. In her new memoir entitled Take This Bread, Sarah Miles calls this counterintuitive wisdom a backward and upside-down way of reading reality. As a very unlikely convert, she should know. Sarah Miles describes herself as a blue state secular intellectual, a lesbian with a child from a previous boyfriend, and a left-wing journalist with habits of deep skepticism. Her grandparents on both sides were missionaries, but in reaction to that upbringing, her own parents were actively hostile to religion. And so, at the age of 46, Miles had never heard a gospel reading, never said the Lord's Prayer, and knew only one person who went to church. But she walked into St. Gregory Episcopal Church in San Francisco, partook of the Eucharist, and experienced a radical Christian conversion. Today, she's on staff at St. Gregory's. Building upon her life experiences as a chef, her conversion through the Eucharist, passion for the poor, and St. Gregory's vision to welcome all people without exceptions or condition, in 2000, Sarah Miles started a food pantry at her church that gave away free bags of groceries with no questions asked 
and no forms to fill out. Every Friday, food for about 400 families is placed around the Eucharistic altar. The miracle of the loaves multiplied, and Miles went on to jumpstart nine more food pantries around San Francisco. Mundane food for the body became not only a sign of God's kingdom, but, as theologians would say, the actual thing signified. Those who received wanted to give. Care for broken spirits accompanied bread for hungry bodies. Since more street people came for food than Christians came for worship on Sunday, comfortable churchgoers were forced to consider the gospel imperative to welcome the stranger. Through all this, writes Miles, quote, I could sometimes grasp the backward, upside-down reality I'd sensed at Christianity's core. The frightening promise that, as the prayer said, echoing Mary's words, things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which have grown old are being made new. This was where I found my faith, a faith expressed in the wild conceit that a helpless, low-caste baby could be God, that my own neediness and misfitting, not my goodness or piety, were what God intended to use. And for further reflection, contemplate the so-called peace prayer erroneously ascribed to St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is error, truth. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in self-forgetting that we find. And it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. Amen. For books this week, I review George Tennant at the center of the storm, my years at the CIA. New York, HarperCollins, 2007, 549 pages. The sorts of controversies that have plagued George Tennant's effort to salvage his reputation begin on the very first page of his memoir. There he writes that on Wednesday, September 12, 2001, he entered the west wing of the White House just as Richard Pearl was exiting. Quote, as the door closed behind him, we made eye contact, and I nodded. 
I had just reached the door myself when Pearl turned to me and said, Iraq has to pay a price for what happened yesterday. They bear responsibility. I was stunned, but said nothing, end quote. The problem with this story is that Pearl says it never happened. He was in France at the time. Pearl also denies the substance of those remarks, even though he admits that he saw but did not speak with Tennant on September 19th, a week later. Says Pearl, quote, it never happened. I never said the things that he attributes to me, end quote. When Tennant became director of the CIA in March 1997, he was the fifth director in seven years. Morale was horrible. Technology was several generations old. Human resources were meager and funds were lacking. He inherited what one observer called a quote-unquote burning platform. I don't doubt that Tennant strengthened the CIA during his seven years there. I also find many of his explanations of various failings convincing. For example, the chaos, paranoia, and intense fears following 9-11. Human error, such as the American bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. The ripple effects of the disputed 2000 election. The ambiguity and complexity of highly technical intelligence gathering. Personality clashes among exaggerated and self-important egos. Party ideology. Genuinely conflicting memories about what someone said or did. The competing agendas between policymakers in the White House and CIA analysts who are ostensibly neutral advice givers. And finally, an underrated and highly sophisticated enemy in Al-Qaeda. Beyond these general explanations, Tennant repeatedly describes how hardworking, how honest, and how overworked he and his CIA colleagues were. Fair enough. But why does Tennant remain utterly uncritical of Bush? Why did he not speak up? when he could have counted and saved thousands of lives, billions of dollars in the credibility of our country before the entire world? Why did he not resign or refuse the Medal of Freedom? Several years ago, Daniel Ellsberg wrote an op-ed in which he rehearsed how he leaked the Pentagon Papers to expose the ugly truth about how five presidential administrations had lied to the public about Vietnam, all the while believing that he, Ellsberg, would spend the rest of his life in prison. His only regret, he said, was that he didn't do it earlier and saved more lives. He then wonders in his op-ed, where are the people in the Bush administration who might have acted similarly? George Packer, a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the widely acclaimed book Assassin's Gate, laments the lack of genuine accountability in Tennant's book. What we get instead is what Packer calls an expected destination at the end of a well-trodden path that leads from disaster 
through obfuscation and defiance to a well-rewarded self-justification. No senior officials in the Bush administration or the military have been held accountable for Iraq. Packer quotes a recent article in the Armed Forces Journal by the Army Lieutenant in Iraq veteran Paul Yingling, who reflects the simmering rage among active-duty active soldiers. Yingling writes, A private who loses a rifle suffers far greater consequences than a general who loses a war. For his many admitted failures, George Tennant collected a Medal of Freedom and $4 million in advance for this book. George Tennant at the center of the storm. For film this week, I review Volver from the year 2006, a movie from Spain. In this complicated, absurdist, and comedic saga by the Spanish director Pedro Almodovar, five women from three generations negotiate the slings and arrows of life. Ramunda's husband, Paco, assaults her teenage daughter, Paula, who in turn murders him with a kitchen knife. They stuff his body in a freezer. Ramunda's sister, Sole, lost her husband, and together they lost their parents in a fire, or so they wrongly believe. But then their mother, Irene, reappears from her deceased sister's house, and thus the title of the film, Volver, to return. The villagers think she's a spirit, but in fact, it turns out to be the real flesh and blood person who wants to settle life's business with her two girls and their friend Augustina, whose mother had an affair with Irene's husband. Thus, one reviewer compared Volver to a highbrow soap opera. My wife and I loved it, but agreed that the many plot trajectories require a second viewing to understand and appreciate it all in Spanish with English subtitles, Volver, starring Penelope Cruz. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem called The Shepherd Boy Sings in the Valley of Humiliation by John Bunyan. John Bunyan lived from 1628 to 1688, he was a Christian writer and a preacher, and of course, most famous for his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. The Shepherd Boy Sings in the Valley of Humiliation. He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. I am content with what I have, little be it or much. In Lord, contentment still I crave, because thou savest such. Fullness to such a burden is 
that go on pilgrimage. Here little, hereafter bliss is best from age to age. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 3rd, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.